Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Be set apart for God. And it's a day where we, as we look ahead to another year, we dedicate or rededicate our lives to Him. And so we're not going to do anything too fancy, but I want you to be in that frame of mind with us that as we close out 2009 and look forward to 2010, a very big part of how we'll look at that new year is through the lens of who we belong to and who we serve, of giving God in a fresh way our whole hearts again. In that spirit, we're going to pray a prayer of confession. And as we do that, um, I know that for some of you, Um, Praying liturgically, reading off a prayer from the screen is a little bit foreign. We're used to praying in our own words with our eyes closed, and that's a very good form of prayer. But it's also another legitimate way to pray by having something that we all read together which frames for us what it is we want to say but often can't phrase the way we'd like to. This morning's prayer is a prayer of confession, and it's good for us to do that on a regular basis. And I want to just set it up this way. We don't just confess for the bad things we have done, but really one of the things we're doing when we confess is to say, I'm not a good person because of the good things I've done, and I'm not a good person because of the bad things I've stopped doing. But I am a good person only because Jesus Christ has given me his goodness. That's one of the most important things that happens when we confess. It's not just saying sorry for our misdeeds, but saying as an overall posture, I am a sinner and Jesus alone makes me righteous. Do you understand that? And so in that spirit, let's be reminded of that as we pray this prayer together. And we're just going to recite this prayer all together out loud. Okay? And you can do that with your eyes open because my eyelids are not transparent. So we may need to read this together. You can pray with your eyes open. It's okay. Let's pray together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And this is the good news of the gospel, that as we let go of any claim to righteousness from ourselves and trust Jesus alone to give us his righteousness, we're forgiven. And every dirty thing you carried into this room is now washed away by the amazing blood of Jesus Christ. He releases you. Isn't that good news? And so you are forgiven. Even though you don't feel that, believe it in your heart, for it's the truth. I'm going to invite Teresa Matthew to come and read the scriptures for us before we hear the message. Isaiah 53, 1-6. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. 
He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Any of you guys are old enough to remember a song with those lyrics from that, that passage that, that we used to sing back in the 80s? Speaking of which, when, when Bobby, you, when you introduce a song as old, old, you have to say it twice, and I remember when it was a new song. That's kind of depressing, so I'll give you a new word. Call them classics. Classics. Most of us probably just wrapped up our Christmas celebrations. We had an amazing celebration at my mom's house. The whole extended family came out. It should be had like 50 people in the house, and it was just a very joyful occasion. Many of you probably had a similar reunion with families, uh, happy and otherwise, and just got to see some faces you don't see every day. I'm sure you gave and received many gifts, uh, ate enough food to gain at least five or ten pounds over the last week or two. I know I, I, I ate so much. One meal, I actually ate ten cookies for lunch. And so we just have so much stuff laying around our house, you could eat all day and not be done until next year. And so hopefully you had a wonderful celebration. It was filled with joy, love, family, friendship. I hope that it was a great time. And throughout the festivities, Jesus was portrayed to us as a small, innocent, harmless baby lying in a manger wrapped in cloths. That's the enduring image of Jesus at Christmas time that we hold in our hearts even at this moment, isn't it? And many of you probably have little manger scenes set up either on your lawn or on your coffee table to remind you of that birth of Christ, that very, very important date in the Christian history. Now is the week between Christmas and the start of a new year. It's when a lot of the trees start coming down if you're diligent. It's when, if you're really diligent, the Christmas lights start to come down. If not, maybe around Easter you'll be taking them down. And all the accoutrements and the decorations of Christmas start to get packed away in boxes. I hope the one thing that doesn't get wrapped up for storage till next year is the presence, the remembrance of Jesus Christ in our lives. But as we put aside for the moment the image of the baby Jesus, because the truth is he didn't stay a baby forever, the enduring question facing all of us this morning is this. Who is Jesus to you? The passage that Teresa read for us is the fourth in a series of prophetic songs that we, we call the servant songs because in Isaiah's prophetic vision, he looks ahead and sees a vision of a Savior who would come and rescue humanity. This prophetic vision was given to Isaiah during a time of great trouble in Israel and in Judah. It was a time where it seemed like it was so bleak, there was no hope for the future, and this wonderful vision came. But Isaiah knew that it wasn't a vision for his lifetime or his generation. 
This wasn't a savior who would come like a political figure and rescue Israel for that particular day. It would be a savior who would come and rescue all humanity once and for all time. He would bring a lasting, eternal salvation, and he would do it as a servant who would suffer greatly. This is the enduring image that is given to us from the Old Testament of the one who would later be known to us as the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And so the question I ask again to you this morning is, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Now, I'm going to try to explore that question with you, but before I flash anything else on the screen or say anything more, pause for a minute to seriously think about that question. Jesus is a lot of things to a lot of people. You're probably in a church rather than sleeping. I mean, thank you for coming to church today. I'm sure when you stepped out in the driveway, a part of your brain said, go back to bed. This is no weather to be outside. I thank you for coming here, and I know that the Lord is honored by the effort you made. But what brought you here today? Why are you in this building gathered with these people to hear these words You have to answer that question in a very personal way. Who is Jesus to you? Now, I'm going to stop talking for about 15 seconds. Think about a phrase that in some way epitomizes who Jesus is for you every day. Don't look at me. Are you thinking? You have that phrase? Here's some things that I've seen over my years pastoring about who Jesus is to different people. For some, he's a moral teacher. And and this is really important if you grew up in a home, in a family without a lot of moral structure where no one really told you what was right or what was wrong and then you read the teachings of Christ and you see an inherent beauty in his morality and his ethics. So that even great leaders of other religions like like Gandhi greatly admired Jesus for the beauty, the undeniable beauty of his moral teaching. And maybe that has been really meaningful to you because he rescued you from a life of really depraved living and showed you a better way. For some, he's a faithful friend. If you've wrestled all your life with loneliness, with feeling like you're different from everyone, rejected by the culture at large, And you found in Jesus that one friend who's always walking in when everyone else is walking out, the one who never changes, never leaves you, that's been really meaningful to you. For others, he's a tribal leader. That sounds weird, but what do I mean by that? That you're not really that into the whole faith thing, but you know that this is the team you play for. If you have to pick a religion to categorize you, this is your religion. You are a Christian, born in a Christian family, raised in Christian ways, living in a Christian nation, This is our tribe, and he's the figurehead of our tribe. And maybe for you, that's as far as it goes, is you just feel instinctively like you're part of his crew, and that's that's good enough. For others, he's a recovery sponsor. If you've ever been through Alcoholics Anonymous or walked with somebody who's been through that, the person who leads you from the valley of despair and addiction into recovery and wholeness is a very important figure. And I can't tell you how many people I've met over the years whose testimony of Jesus is, I used to be a drug addict, a sex addict, and when I met Jesus, he rescued me from these dark appetites, and I learned how to be a whole person again, and I owe him literally my very life. 
He saved me in more ways than one. Any of those hitting pay dirt yet? How about a chief executive for all of us who read Rick Warren's book and are purpose-driven? He's the one who gives us our marching orders, the purpose that orders our days. We'd be lost if he didn't give us work to do, if there was no great commission that said, go into all the nations and be making disciples. What will we do with ourselves? And so we love to turn to him as the leader among all leaders, the highest authority in our lives. Brothers, he's a good luck charm, isn't he? If you don't have quiet time in the morning and you lose your tennis match, you're like, well, now I know why. I didn't, give, I didn't rub the good luck charm, the, the rabbit's foot of Jesus today, and so he's the one who protects you from life's calamities. Maybe he's your personal bodyguard because we live in a really dangerous, unpredictable world, and once you have children, you feel that even more intensely, don't you? You see how fragile they are. Just watching your kids walk through a, 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 a parking lot like this filled with snow and ice, and you're so worried that they might slip and crack their heads open. Every kid today wears a bike helmet and has leashes and all that. We're so worried. We're, we're afraid of living in this world, and we need something that makes us feel safe. And for many people, Jesus is the one who produces that feeling of security. Maybe for some of you, and you're still waiting on this, he's the matchmaker. You'd still be lonely and single without him, but he brought someone into your life, and he brainwashed him to loving you, and now you're happily ever after, right? Maybe you're waiting for that day, and Lord knows there are some people who bolt from church as soon as they get hitched, because that's really why they were here. Not a bus of harvest, of course. I'm talking about all those other churches out there. But isn't this what some of us are counting on Jesus to be? And this is the last one that came to me as I was writing the sermon. Is he's a social coordinator. What I mean by this is, you're not necessarily here because you're into Jesus, but you love the friends you've made here. Jesus is the one around whom all these people seem to rally, and so he's the glue that holds this social network together, and you like that. If the friendship disappeared, you would not necessarily stay for the Jesus because you don't really know him that well, but you're grateful that he's happened to call together this web of people. And just look around the room. Do you think other than Jesus, anything would have brought all of us together into this room right now? And so he's the one who has provided the backdrop for so much of our social lives. Now, I'm not critiquing that. I'm just trying to explore honestly some of the real gut-level reasons why people come to Jesus and remain with him. What's your reason for coming to Jesus? What draws you to him? Who is he to you? I look over that list, and what I see is that every one of those things is a valid, legitimate thing that Jesus brings into our lives. As I tip down every one of those things, I can tell you that Jesus at some level has been that in my life personally. But as we think about all the different things Jesus can be to a human being, is there one thing, one role, which stands head and shoulders above all the others that is the foundation from which every other facet of our relating to Jesus flows out of? And I would suggest to you that this text tells us the foundational, most important way that we relate to Jesus above every other identity is He is above all other things, our Savior. If you don't understand that and receive that, Jesus and the church and the Christian faith will never make sense to you. You will go from church to church looking for the tribe that fits you. 
You will try different lifestyles, different ethics, different rules. You'll try sacrificing money and health and time, and none of it will fill your heart. None of it will make sense until Jesus is first embraced at the foundation of it all as our Savior. He can't be anything else in any real powerful way to us. Does that make sense to you so far? When we look again at the text, look what it says. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. What I see in in those verses there is that Jesus took upon himself the guilt for the bad things that abound everywhere in this world. And because it's usually easier to start this way, let's talk about the evil that others have done. You see it everywhere you look. Evil is everywhere in this world. Watch the evening news. Talk to a police officer for 15 minutes. They will tell you the story after story of the evil that is everywhere. You could try to explain it by poverty, by lack of education, but the real explanation is that there is a darkness that lives in the human heart which we don't like to think about or acknowledge, but it's there in every one of us. And it's not just the evil in the world around us. Let's talk about ourselves now. There is an evil that lurks in each of us. Things we do that we would be devastated if the rest of the world found out. Things we're ashamed of. Things for which we have such self-loathing and hatred of ourselves. We curse our own weakness because as much as we hate what we see in us, we can't stop doing them. If you watch the show Dexter on Showtime, he refers all the time to this, it's a twisted show, you should only watch it if you have a very strong appetite. Um, He talks about a dark passenger, and that's about the most valuable thing I've gotten from that show, is this idea of this curse, this thing that follows him everywhere, a dark passenger who is always in the next seat over. It directs him, It, it, it surrounds him, it defines him. It's an appetite he can't suppress. We each have a dark passenger. And as much pain as we've endured, we've caused quite a bit ourselves, haven't we? And every rotten thing which you and I have ever done and yet plan to do in the future demands justice. Now, we we never acknowledge that more than when it's done against us. But let's just face it. Whenever evil is done and someone pays a price, somebody has to atone for that. If I walk up to you right now, if I instruct your neighbor to turn to you and slap you as hard as they can on the one cheek, how many of you will obey Jesus and just meekly turn the other one? Maybe the women might because you're so docile and, and godly, but the men... We don't know Jesus as well as the women. We want to fight. When someone hits you, they must pay. Something must even out that score because I don't like just leaving that hanging. It's unfinished business. And what do we do with the sheer weight of all the evil that has been done on the earth, much of it unrepented, unowned up for? Who will take all of that mess, that darkness, and deal with it? Well, Jesus did that. He took upon himself our iniquities. 
He took upon himself our transgressions. He put that on his own shoulders. But what's even more amazing to me is that he didn't just stop there. He also took upon himself the result of all that evil. This is where many of us are hung up because we have so many flaws in our lives, failings and weaknesses, diseases, which are part of the fallen world we live in. Starting from something as simple as acne to moving all the way up to addiction and abuse and child abuse and horrible things done to us to embarrass us, to dehumanize us in our childhood. All of those things are the result of the sin of others, evil which has been done to us, and it causes infirmity and sorrow in our spirit. And that's the part we wonder, who's going to take this away? I will apologize for my evil, but who will atone for the evil done to me? Who's going to scoop out all this hurt and all this dark gunk that keeps collecting in my soul? Who will deal with that? And Jesus says, it wasn't just your guilt which he bore on his shoulders, but he also bore the result of all that sin. And onto his shoulders, he heaped our pain and our failing and our infirmity so that we would never have to bear that burden alone so that we can never say of our God, you don't know what I'm going through. You just don't understand. You can say that to every other human being on earth, and you're probably right. If we have not walked in your shoes, we have no right to claim understanding of what your pain feels like. But there is one who absolutely understands because he bore it for you and with you as surely as he took your guilt on his shoulders. He also bore your pain and your brokenheartedness, and he understands you. You can never say to Jesus, you don't get me. Nobody else gets you, but he gets you. And he he bore an incredibly high price to identify with what it feels like to walk a mile in your shoes. Unless we think that he was forced into this sacrifice by a heavy-handed Father God, it says, you see, a little further back in 52, it says, see, my servant will act wisely. That indicates to us that the Messiah, the Savior, wasn't forced into doing this, but seeing that he was the only one who could satisfy God's justice, the only one who could do this, he chose to accept this portion in his life. No one forced him to do it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, that amazing prayer which Jesus uttered with sweat coming out like blood, and he said, "'Not my will, but yours be done.'" he willingly accepted his responsibility in the whole redemptive work of God. And it was a very, very high price he paid. If we ever forget this part of it, if we ever give the whole Christian faith, the gospel story, a a nice makeover. Remember in the old Western movies of John Wayne, how a guy would get shot, and there wouldn't even be a blood splotch on the shirt. We have to totally use our imagination. It's like when we played as kids, Pow! (sighs) Nothing! And the guy's doing this whole great act of dying, not even a drop of blood. Contrast that to the movies of today. The guy gets shot, and there's the blood spurting like feet out of his belly, everywhere pooling on the floor. It's gross, but it's real. I like the new way better, because it scares me to play with guns more when I see the real damage than when I see, ah, ooh, When I was a little kid, I loved guns because I thought they were harmless. Now I know better. 
And you know, the real gospel story is not some sanitized thing where, oh, there's Jesus with a little nail in his wrist and a little trickle of blood. But otherwise, he looks like he's ready for the, the five o'clock news. The perfect bearded anchor man, right? I mean, no, it's not the story at all. This is the picture of the gospel. It says that he was so beaten, so mistreated, that his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man that in fact his form lost all human likeness. To look at him, you'd have to strain to see that it's a human being you're looking at. I really struggled, I wrestled with whether to include this picture, and it's in fact the tamer of the two pictures I'd found, both screen captures from the film by Mel Gibson called The Passion of the Christ. Any of you see that movie more than once? A few brave souls. That's not an easy movie to watch again. I've tried, and I've gotten about halfway through. It's so hard for me to watch that because I realized I grew up with a sanitized gospel that said, Jesus kind of just went, uh-huh, uh-huh. all right, it's done. This reminds me, and many people criticized Mel Gibson's film. It was too graphic, they say. But if you read Isaiah's prophetic vision, I don't think Mel Gibson went far enough. He was so disfigured, you could not discern human form in what was left of the flesh hanging on those bones. It was this terrible suffering that began the relationship that God wants to have with you and me. You must never allow the gospel or the Christian faith to be reduced to anything else but this. This is the good news. What, what eventually happened to that little baby Jesus is that picture right there. This is why we have hope and why we're saved. And if Jesus will be anything to us ever, it must begin here, not under a Christmas tree, but under Calvary's tree at the foot of the cross. This is where we meet Jesus, who through his wounds brings peace between us and God. If Jesus is to be anything else, he must first and above all else be for you and me, our Savior. Isaiah further goes on to say this. He was shocked when he looked because, you know, most people think that a Christ-like figure, a Savior, will have a compelling appearance. But when he saw in his prophetic vision, he said he, said he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. You know, this harkens back to when Israel was looking for their first king, and there stood Saul, six foot three, a tall drink of water. He looked every bit like the part of the king. Those of us who are short and ogre-like in our appearance, we don't like men who look like that. and just stand there and everyone goes, there's a king right there, and there's his court jester or his cupbearer or something. For some reason, we are instinctively drawn to beauty, aren't we? And that's scientifically proven. Good-looking people make more money. They get hired more easily. The barriers are lower for them. Everyone wants to come to work every day and look at your beautiful face. So chances are you might get away with being a little less gifted and still make more than everyone else. Now, if you're good-looking, I'm not saying you're incompetent, but I'm saying you can afford to be. Because for whatever reason, something in the human heart loves beauty. Let's face it, if we're all honest, we were all depressed 
in Shrek when Fiona the princess turned out also to be an ogre. I'm like, come on, no! She looks terrible like that. Give me the princess back. What is it about us that without asking a lot of questions, instinctively trust and are attracted to beauty, as if beauty is by itself some kind of virtue rather than an accident of birth? Yeah, I know you brush your teeth and you comb your hair, but that alone doesn't make you beautiful. Genetics, a simple act of God, made you beautiful. I know some of you know I work real hard to get to where I am. Yes, but for all the work in the world, there's a limit to where I'm going to go. Okay? And right, actually, this is about as you're seeing the maximum right here. I can't go beyond this. And some of you know what I'm talking about because you're right there too. <laughs> as good as it gets, baby. And yet we think about Jesus and we think, surely he must have had good skin and perfect hair. He must have looked like a savior, drawn out the trust of simple, uneducated men like Peter, who saw in him something that looked leader-like. I remember a few years back when some scientists dug up a first century Palestinian skull from right around the time and vicinity of where Jesus lived, and they, do a, they, they did a, a computer rendering of what Jesus might have looked like. And that's the face they came up with. And I remember seeing that all over the internet and on TV, and I was so kind of troubled by that picture. Because I'm looking at... I'm, oh, I'm sorry. How do I... I'm looking at this picture right here on the left. And all I can think is, that's not Jesus. That's some dorky looking dude. If I ran into him, I'm like, hey, tell me where I can find your master, the savior of the world. And if we saw him hanging on a cross, it wouldn't be as compelling as the guy whose beard is feathered. Look at that. His beard, if you could see that with us, his beard is feathered. It's perfect. And that's the way he went to the cross in all the old movies. But I think the one on the left got it right. That's what an average Palestinian man looked like. Not a particularly good-looking one either. And I think probably Jesus had nothing inherent to his appearance that would make you want to lay everything down and run after him. It wasn't just his appearance that was unattractive, though. It was the stuff that came out of his mouth. The crazy stuff he was saying that rubbed everybody the wrong way. He kept talking about how his views on sex were all wrong. His views on power, on anger issues, on ambition, on wealth. Everything was all twisted. It was exactly the opposite of what our hearts were telling us. He was saying that money is not important, but there are treasures even more enduring than money. And everyone heard that and said, what are you talking about? He said that love is more important than lust and ultimately far more satisfying. He said that if you return the bad deeds of your enemy with kindness and mercy, you will find that it satisfies the soul far more than vengeance. Everything this guy said was unattractive. And yet for some reason, people still followed him. Why is that? Here's the point I'm trying to make. If you're drawn to Jesus because you think he will bring added value to your life, 
If you're drawn to Jesus because he completes the perfect picture of the perfect life you've had, I've got the perfect house, the perfect spouse, the perfect kids, the perfect ethnicity, the perfect job, the perfect income, the perfect lawn, and the perfect religion. I'm set. Nine out of ten on almost every scale of measure. If you think that Jesus will somehow add attraction and value to your life, you've missed something terrible. You've missed something foundational about the gospel. If you're attracted to Jesus, you probably misunderstood something along the way. What draws us to Jesus is not the picture of the life he'll give you afterwards. What draws us to Jesus is the desperate awareness that we are lost and hopeless without his release and his forgiveness. That if we don't come to him as Savior first, he cannot be the one who puts the icing on the cake of our lives. And some of us have attempted this. Some of us have, have attempted to come to Jesus as the one who defines culture for us, the one who shapes our ethics the one who teaches us how to raise our children, but deep in our hearts we have now bowed consistently to Him as the one who saves us. And if that's what we're attempting, then we have not lived in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is first above all else, the Savior. And it is only in that act that He demonstrates beyond all doubt He is Lord and Master over everything. It is because of the sacrifice that God the Father consistently says all the way through Revelation, for this sacrifice, the Lamb is seated at the right hand of God. Not just because He was born God's Son, but because He demonstrated His godliness, His divinity in the redeeming work on the cross. Without the cross, there's no Christianity. And if you've tried to make sense of this faith as a way of life, and have not bowed your knees to him at the foot of the cross, then all this is probably still for you a frustrating mystery at some level. We do not come to Jesus under the Christmas tree, but under the cross of Jesus Christ. What I find interesting is that rather than be called Lord and King, first, the Savior is depicted in Scripture as the servant of God. All of these prophetic visions of Isaiah refer to Jesus the Savior as the servant of God. That means that even the Son of God found his core identity as one who serves God. That's a really hard thing for us to embrace, isn't it? And here maybe is the greatest tension of the Christian experience, is that we know we're supposed to be God's servants, but we try every day to make God our servant instead. This is the invisible battle, the tug of war in our hearts. Is rather than asking each day in the spirit of John F. Kennedy, ask not what your God can do for you, but what you can do for your God. That isn't our prayer, is it? But we are first drawn to God when we need Him to serve our lives. That's the wrong way around. He does serve us. He does meet our needs. He provides for us. But we must accept into the core of our being that we are the servants of God. You know, when we talk about Consecration Sunday, what we're really talking about is belonging to and serving. 
It's being set aside for someone because we belong to that person and we're made to serve him. And for those of you who are about to lose consciousness, I know you partied hard for Christmas, I'm about to wrap up here. Stay with me for a few last moments. Here's how you could think about what consecration is. Let's think about toothbrushes in a family. In every family, how many of you have that, that sick kind of family arrangement where there's one communal toothbrush and everyone just uses the toothbrush? Anyone? Yeah, that's totally disgusting. Okay? It's totally, and you're probably shy because you're going to be the only one raising your hand. That's wrong, by the way. Don't do that. Every member has their own toothbrush because even though technically I can grab any toothbrush and will still get the job done, we each have one that belongs exclusively to me. I have priority over its use, and it has a function which I make use of every day, at least a couple times, I hope. We don't like any ambiguity when it comes to toothbrush ownership, do we? Now, I've been to retreats with my buddies in college where we all, between the five of us, brought one toothbrush. And in those days, it was fine. It was kind of fun. Like, who's got the toothbrush? And you pass it around, and it's disgusting. But, you know, you're young, and that's just how stupid we were. But when it comes to toothbrushes, and when it comes to, here's a leap, and when it comes to the human heart, God does not like ambiguity as to who you belong to and who you serve. That is a foundational question, if left unanswered, will cause every other thing to lose its phase, if you know what I mean. This morning, I got called out of the house rather abruptly, and I joined the trailer team in the frigid 18-degree weather and I am so grateful for this team. If you guys haven't thanked the trailer team in a while, make sure you give them a hug and a kiss on the cheek. Okay? These guys are amazing. And they wrestled against the, the cold and frozen locks and all of that, getting everything out there this morning. But at one point, we were missing the right key. And there was a Ram 2500 Hemi pickup truck. If you ever heard this thing turn over, we got this huge 27-foot trailer stacked with tens of thousands of dollars of high-tech gear, our whole church sitting right there, and we couldn't do anything with it for want of a small slab of metal shaped like a key, which unlocked one little piece, the, the hitch ball cover. And so all of us in the, in the cold are staring, going, I can't believe that this huge, powerful thing filled with potential is dead in the water because we're missing a key. And when Brian Lee zoomed up in his Mustang and delivered the key, it was like that coiled-up tension in us was resolved, and everything that those things could become did become because the key was provided. That's the way a foundational truth works. If you don't answer the first and most important question, nothing else really fits the picture. And as we look ahead to 2010, the most important question which demands an answer is who is Jesus to you? And put another way, to whom do you belong and whom do you serve? Whose toothbrush are you? Because if you don't answer that question, then every goal and every ambition for the next year will serve the wrong person and will leave you flat and disappointed. Don't don't dare go into 2010 filled only with thoughts of a slimmer waistline and a fatter bank account and a new car. 
Don't let your ambitions be entirely flowing out of serving yourself. Because if that's where you start your life, it will not end well for you. You will remain lost and hungry no matter how much you eat. But you answer this simple foundational question, who do I belong to? Who do I serve? Who is Jesus to me? You answer that correctly. And it's like the, the, the key that turns the tumblers and everything opens up to you. Everything. And you'll understand that when you get to that moment. You'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. It's my hope for us as we close out this year that we can spend a few minutes at the end of this service solemnly, quietly reflecting on that question. Who do you belong to? Who do you serve? And flowing out of the answer to that question, I'm going to give us this invitation. That as you think ahead to 2010, forget lifetime fitness, forget taking that graduate school course you've been planning to take. Go ahead and do all those things, but realize where they fit in the big picture. Instead, think ahead to next year and make one solitary commitment that rises above all the others that comes out of this idea that I belong to Jesus and I am his servant. One commitment that will demonstrate that you understand that. One thing which as you ask for his help, he will do for you. He will change in you. Now I've been mulling this over because I got a head start. I had a week to think these thoughts ahead of you. And I've got something that's just burning a hole in my spirit right now. And I'm scared to verbalize it to anyone because I don't want to be held accountable. But I know that this is what God is calling in my heart to do as a demonstration that I know who I belong to and whom I serve. <clears throat> I'm going to invite you to take some moments and do that yourselves. And we're going to have some music playing and we're not going to end this quickly. We're going to have at least five minutes of just time for you to reflect. And five minutes will drag if you're not paying attention, right? but engage God. And let me say this, even if you're one of the people in our church who comes out faithfully, but you have not yet given your heart to Jesus Christ, again, we welcome you every week to be among us. We love that you're here. Here's the commitment I'm going to ask you to make if you would accept this challenge for next year. Take the exploration of Jesus more seriously next year than you have even this year. The fact that you come out every week amazes me, and I'm glad for it, but what I'm asking you this year to do is if you haven't read the Bible, read it. Find out who this Jesus is that everyone else around here seems to be so committed to. And if you haven't let people talk to you about Jesus with an open heart, stop fighting it so hard. If Jesus is a bunch of baloney, you've got nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. Let his people speak to you of him and don't fight them. Listen. And if it's truth, you will know it in your spirit. And if it's baloney, you'll have lost nothing. But I'm asking you next year to just listen to the story of Jesus without fighting him in your spirit. And let him prove whether he is real or not. Whoever you are, let's take a few moments now as the music's playing and you can, do, you can take whatever posture you want. I find often it helps me to kneel when I'm getting before God, because it kind of shuts out the rest of the room, you can just bow your heads, you can stand, you can walk around, but for the next five minutes, let's wrestle with that question. Who is Jesus to me?
And in 2010, to whom do I belong? And whom do I serve? Amen? Let's let the rest of the room drown out and let's focus on God and let's reflect on that for a few minutes. you've had some time to reflect I'm going to give you a couple more minutes but I'm going to also give you a challenge and a further invitation even if you don't keep a journal I would encourage you to think about the commitment the Lord is leading you to make about next year about belonging to him being set aside for him I encourage you to write it down because sometimes the act of writing brings something that's just an idea into the realm of reality. And then I'm going to encourage you to share that commitment with somebody else, somebody you really trust who won't lord it over you or gloat, but is a true friend, a partner. Because often when we keep it to ourselves, we backpedal too easily. But a faithful friend will help us keep walking in the direction we've already said to ourselves we want to go. So as you think about that, think also who you will share your godly ambition for 2010, something which will demonstrate to your own heart that you've wrestled with the question of who Jesus is to you. I'm, I'm going to ask this, the guys to play this song one more time, and I just feel like some of us still need a little more time. We'll end soon, but let's take a few more moments just to reflect quietly before. Father, we thank you for the gift of our church family. I thank you that we can spend one of the last days of this year together in this familiar place, people that mean a lot to us. And we can also do this together in your presence. Lord, as our church is remembered in the years to come, even by future generations, maybe some will remember us as the church that loved the nations that loved one another, that loved life. But of all things, above all things, let us be remembered as the church that loved Jesus well. Lord Jesus, without you, we would have no peace, no hope. And we beg you, Impress yourself upon every heart in this church so that you would take the first place in everything as you deserve to have. And as we look ahead to next year, reshape our goals and our ambitions so that we and the world around us might know that we belong to you and we serve you because you redeemed us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.